With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to In Conversation With, a Hollywood Reporter podcast produced in partnership with Apple TV+. In each episode, we sit down with the creators and stars of some of TV's most compelling shows to hear more about what went into bringing these stories to life. I'm Michael O'Connell, senior writer at The Hollywood Reporter, and for this episode, I'm speaking with Rob McElhaney, the co-creator and star of Mythic Quest, Raven's Banquet. A workplace comedy and satire of video game developers, the show examines a sprawling subculture, the eccentric egos that populate the gaming world, and a favorite subject of its showrunner, toxic masculinity. Mythic Quest recently got quite a bit of attention for a quarantine special that the cast filmed and edited remotely, an episode McElhaney directed from his home. McElhaney is well known for creating It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, the body comedy in which he also stars alongside Mythic Quest co-creator Charlie Day and his wife Caitlin Olson. The series was recently renewed by FX for a wild 15th season. Rob, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Does any part of you have reservations about doing a new show knowing that apparently they can go on for longer than 15 years? <laughs> I'm I'm hoping to get to do this one for 15 years. I mean, I don't take for granted how fortunate we are to to get to do what we love. So uh, when I find something that I, I love to do and, and there's still an audience for it and we're still having fun and, and the network wants to continue to pay for it, then we'll keep doing it. I'm fascinated that one of the seeds for Mythic Quest was uh, just a visit to Ubisoft headquarters in Montreal. Can you talk a little bit about the courtship and the origins and, and how this all came about? Yeah, well, um, I, I actually had no interest in making a show about video games. Uh, I, I play games from time to time, but I wouldn't consider myself an avid gamer, and I didn't know anything about video game development, and I thought maybe it'd be just a little too niche anyway. And then Ubisoft um, said, why don't you just come and, and take a trip up to Montreal and, and come visit our studio. And I'd, I'd never been to Montreal before, so I thought, okay, great. It's a free trip to, to one of the world's great cities. I'll go check it out, and while I'm there, I guess I'll pass by this video game uh, company. And, I, I mean, I think within the first 15 minutes, I, I realized we had something. How did the ask even come to you? Were you talking to them about something else? Was it through an agent? Yeah, so they they approached Three Arts uh, Entertainment, who is uh, my uh, management company and, and and my producing partner, and so they reached out to 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 Three Arts because of Sunny and because they also produce Silicon Valley amongst a number of different uh, very successful comedies, many shows, and many 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 shows, <laughs> and so they said, hey, we really love Sunny, and we're wondering if if Rob might be interested in in doing something in in our field. And I said, no. <laughs> and that turned out to be a, a giant mistake, but uh, one that I rectified very quickly. Wait, so what sells you in that first 15 minutes in the office? Well, it was very clear right from the very beginning that it was filled with passionate people, all very different and all with very different points of view, but that they were all working towards the same goal. 
and and that was the success of of uh, this particular studio, but also a, a few particular games. And they were so they were united by their love of games, but they came from every country, every culture, every city, every state in in the world, rural and urban. And it was like this great unifying love of games was something that they all shared. And then from that point forward, it, it seemed as though they shared absolutely nothing else. And that there were so many disparate personalities and so much conflict because everybody came at it from a different point of view. And then there was also these incredibly outsized egos, and that was understandable. They, they are creating, they are creating uh, these massive, massive pieces of entertainment. I mean, that industry dwarfs our traditional entertainment industry. And so they have a bit of a chip on their shoulder, and rightfully so. You know, Grand Theft Auto as a, I, I, a lot of people, when they hear this stuff, they can't believe it, and I, I couldn't believe it when I first heard it. But Grand Theft Auto, uh, as a franchise, has made more money than Star Wars. Whoa. <laughs> including merchandising. And that's over f- a 40, what, 45-year period, as opposed to Grand Theft Auto, which would be over, I don't know, like an 18-year period. Mm-hmm. It has grossed, it is, it is the highest grossing piece of intellectual property in the history of the world. And everybody knows who George Lucas is. Do you know who created Grand Theft Auto? No, and I I hope the money is some comfort that I I don't for him or her. (laughs) Yes, I mean, that's the thing. I mean, look, they're just like movie sets or or TV shows. It's no one, there's no one person. Uh, It really is a confluence of the work of so many, so many members of the team. Uh, However, I, I couldn't name one person associated with Grand Theft Auto, and that's unfair. And that 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 yeah. drives them crazy. I'm sure. I've never talked to anybody again because I don't know who any any of them are. But I, I mean, that's just like that's got to be that's got to be enraging to them. Not necessarily that they're not like celebrated or you know, but but the fact that we don't even know who they are because it's, that is not an aspect or a part of the culture, a popular culture, is understanding who are the people behind these games. I think is got to be frustrating. And for us, it's really fascinating to explore. How do you get the culture as a more passive gamer? Did you did you guys look for gamers to staff up the writer's room or any of the your fellow producers like really invested in this world? How did you sort of research it? Because it is such a huge subculture. Yeah, we, we really bifurcated the writer's room and made sure that we had half of the the, the room are either hardcore gamers, people with a tremendous uh, amount of uh, experience in gaming or developers themselves. And then the other half uh, have either never played a video game in their life or have no interest in games. And I thought that was important because we want to make sure that this is a show for everybody. And I think that's one of it, it was one of our biggest hurdles in the beginning. I knew it was going to be. And it's also become one of our greatest assets. Uh, people saying, well, I don't, I'm, uh, I think the biggest compliment that we get, and I get it often, every day, almost in social media, people saying, I didn't think this show was for me. I don't, I don't care about video games. And yet I found myself really loving it. But then we also hear from people in the industry saying, wow, it's clear that you took the steps to try to get it right and to make it at the very least feel authentic. We're always going to have to take some amount of, of liberty 
of creative liberty to tell stories because, you know, just like anything else, you don't want to see the in and out of the specifics of making a game that would become tedious. You want to tell a story. And so you have to take some shortcuts here and there. But, you know, it's my job to make sure that those shortcuts still feel authentic to the world. Can you tell me a little bit about the decision to to star in it and and not just produce and, and write and direct and and how much of that has to do with your apparent fascination with toxic masculinity? Yeah, I, I'm just fascinated with with I, you know I'm fascinated with ma- masculinity just in general, and of course the toxic aspects, but also the positive aspects, mm-hmm. and and I feel like being able to have. Uh, two shows where I get to explore all of the positive and all of the negative aspects of what it is to be uh, a, a man in today's culture is just like a really fun experience for me because it gets me to, to, to really spend a lot of time like thinking about it and talking about it and exploring it. And especially with people of all generations. You know, I'm, I'm having conversations with F. Murray Abraham about it, but I'm also having conversations about it with 21-year-olds, you know, who are on my, who are on my staff. And I, I find that really fascinating because it gives me the opportunity to, to continue to learn and, and, and grow. How have those conversations changed for you during your time in Hollywood? Because it, I, I feel like it wasn't something that was as openly examined 15 years ago as it is now. Yeah. I mean, I suppose it's just sort of unfolding organically as, as you know, one of the things that we try to do with Sonny, uh, which I think is evident, and we're trying to do with MythiQuest is what are the conversations that the culture is having and how do we explore those? How do we continue to explore those? And that's really important to us because it makes us feel as though we're not just making jokes, right, for 22 minutes. And I think that's the reason that Sonny has existed for 14 and what will, what will be 15 seasons, uh, at the very least, because we're able to take difficult conversations and difficult things that we're, uh, we're all experiencing as a collective community and then, and then try to jam them through the prism of a 22-minute comedy and then, and then hopefully come out of it with some different perspective. And I think that's, that's again, like a compliment we get from Sonny and I hear it all the time. Although, you know, it's somewhat frustrating when people say, I didn't watch Sonny for 11 years because I thought it was something because I would hear people talk about it or I would see eclipse mm-hmm. or I would see, I would see that it was profane and that it was lowbrow humor or it was, you know, fill in the blank. And then they say, but then I'd watch it because finally my girlfriend forced me to, or my husband said, you have to see this, or my brother said, please, please just watch it. And then people realize, you know, whether they like it or not is, is, you know, that's the, everybody's got an opinion, but at least I like that people will take the time to understand what we're trying to do. You just mentioned like examining shared cultural experiences. And I don't think that there's probably a better example of that than the quarantine episode you just filmed and produced remotely. Uh, At what point in this whole stay at home situation did you get the itch to do something like this? And 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 what were the hurdles initially to to make it happen? Yeah, it was it was about um, well, well, from conception to delivery was about three weeks. So that's wild. So we yeah, we knew it had to happen fast because we knew we wanted to make sure that it was released at a time where we could all 
experience it together in, in the same way. So the genesis of it, honestly, was I just wanted to get people paid. So I just wanted to get back to work and get the crew working. But but how could we do that and create an episode that didn't just feel like we slapped something together for the sake of doing it, but that that it could stand up as a premium episode of the show, that we could deliver something that we didn't have to apologize for the quality you know, at any point in its run. You could look, hopefully look back on this episode five years from now and not even know that we made it in quarantine, that it looked like we made it in a studio over the course of three months. And, and I, think, I think we've achieved that. I, I, um, I think we maybe made the best episode of the series. What are some of the elements that you needed to achieve that? Because, I mean, not to discredit anyone, but some of the things that we saw in, in March and early April were rather bootleg looking and low res. And as you mentioned, this has a very high production value. It's a very glossy. It doesn't look like something that was filmed under duress. Yeah. Now, look, at, at the risk of sounding like an Apple salesman, um, because uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's not my job, uh, I'll say that it couldn't have been done without the iPhone. Mm-hmm. Um, when we realized we wanted to do it, the first call I made was to Cupertino. And I said, hey, um, we're thinking about doing this because of the workflow system that we we want to create. We need 40 iPhones and we need uh, 20 sets of AirPods. Can you, you know, if you, this was on a Sunday, so they got a conference call together on a Sunday. And I said, if we can have them by Friday, then I think we can do this. And I think we can get this, this episode up and out uh, in the time that we're in quarantine. And, um, one of my favorite people in Cupertino right now is a woman named Terry Pitts, and she's our she's our rep. And she said, I think before I even finished the sentence, she said, okay, I have 40 iPhones and, and 20 AirPods. I've tracked them down already. They're in Los Angeles, and I will have them to your house by 5 o'clock tonight. <laughs> and so when you have the full weight and force <laughs> of the biggest company in the history of humanity yeah. uh, behind you and the technology that is, you know, to someone as dumb as me, th- this, m- this technology is miraculous. It's truly m- miraculous because we had, to, we had to be able to capture 4K imagery with high premium production level sound, and we had to do it with actors operating the cameras. <laughs> So while also uh, doing all their own set dressing, their hair and makeup, and then performing. So, you know, without the ease of use of, of the products and their ability to, to capture premium level content uh, from, from a professional grade level, it just wouldn't have been possible. So there you go, Apple. You're welcome. <laughs> In just hearing you talk about setting up the audio for this, you, you clearly have learned a lot about technology and the way things work. Look, I think that's a huge benefit of, of the experience is that it's not that we all didn't collectively have respect for the other members of the crew and, and craftspeople on the show. Of course we did. But, but unless you're on the ground floor really truly getting into the minutia of what everybody is doing on a day-to-day basis, you can't really truly understand how important everybody is. And it was so great to see not just the actors, but to see the photography department, to see hair and makeup, to see uh, set deck, to see special effects, to see visual effects. Everybody's on these Zoom calls at the same time, and they're working with each other to try to create the same premium look that we're going to get in an episode of the show. And all of a sudden, the actors realize, like, wow, 
like these, there are, there are things that I never thought I would ever have to think about, and I I am so grateful that there are people out there thinking about this <laughs> and working on on this on a daily basis, and this is what makes the show. So what we were left with in the end was a a, a truly shared communal experience, and I think what's going to come out of it is a deeper and greater respect for for each other and the work that that everyone does. I mean, having accomplished it now. Is this any way to work moving forward or is it just you can only do so much like this? I would say from an emotional standpoint, yes. We were really forced into having a a tremendous amount of patience, not only with each other and with the technology, but with ourselves. And that's what I spent a lot of my time doing was making sure that I was, as a director like and, and, and the showrunner, reminding people not to beat themselves up um, because I saw a lot of that. I, I saw a lot of people cutting each other slack and giving each other you know, the respect that they deserve and, and having the patience with each other. But when it came to themselves, there was a lot of frustration. Why can't I do this? I don't understand. Why can't I get this button? Why can't I do my makeup the way that you're asking me to do it? And, you know, I just kept reassuring people, everybody, in every department, this is okay. Give yourself a break. This is what you're trying to do is next to impossible. You shouldn't know how to do this. We're all in this, you know, for the first time. So let's just treat ourselves and each other continually with, um, with patience and respect. And, and I think that moving forward is something we can, we can take with us. I think in terms of the workflow system, the amount of time in which we did it, and uh, the technical hurdles, I, I truly don't ever want to do this again. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, if we're not back, if we're not back on that stage, you know, in the next few months, yeah. and, and it could be that, and the audience says, we want to see another one, and Apple says, we want to pay for another one, then then let's go get the crew paid for another three weeks. I mean, it's not like you went easy on yourself. This whole episode culminates in this elaborate sequence with a Rube Goldberg-esque machine. Where did that idea come from? And I read that you did it in one take, which I find so hard to believe. You read, I don't know what that source was that where you read it, we did it in one take, but they're a liar. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> that is not, that is not, that is not what happened. So we wanted to, we, we wanted to thematically explore this idea of a group of people working together for a common goal. It felt like meta in so many ways. It felt like that's what the crew was was doing. Uh, and it feels like it's what we are doing as a species right now. And 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 exploring the idea that, that if one person or one entity isn't there and doesn't show up, then it messes it up for everybody. And so great. So but we're a comedy. But how do you do that in a way that's not heavy-handed? How do you do that in a way that's not preachy, that's just fun? And really our goal was, at the very least, we were going to make 25 minutes of something that could be funny and make people laugh and just bring a level of, of, of levity to people's lives uh, in dark times. And at best, we could create something that was emotionally resonant, that made people feel a little less alone, but ultimately left them with a sense of optimism and uh, excitement and triumph. And, you know, that's kind of what we really endeavored to do all the way through. Mm-hmm. And when we came up with the Rube Goldberg thing, we thought, wow, that's a, that might be a really fun and silly way to kind of say all the things that we want to say. How about instead of saying anything, we say nothing and we just show. This is a workplace comedy 
workplaces are closed and likely changing dramatically when they do reopen. Where were you with season two when you had to press pause and and how are you thinking about approaching the show moving forward? Yeah, so we were we were in the middle of shooting episode one, season two. And the scene in which the last day of shooting was a Thursday. And it was finally like it was Thursday. I just said, look, we, we were shutting down. We have to we have to shut down. We can't bring we can't have people coming back to to work anymore. And so that was the middle of that day. And the scene we were shooting uh, and thankfully, we, we at least had a little bit of foresight to recognize we shouldn't have an audience. But the scene was Poppy and I presenting in front of 2000 people at E3. So that gives you a pretty good indication <laughs> of how dramatically we're going to have to adjust the second season of the show. Because, yes, that's a sp- very specific adjustment that, of course, that's just not going to happen. That's not might, might not happen for a couple of years. And our show clearly takes place in a world that uh, is very close to our own. Um, we want to stay as as current and realistic as we possibly can and not pretend that this isn't going to affect us for years to come. So we really have to go back through and 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 take a look at at how we're going to rewrite a, a good good amount of the show. Gosh, the quarantine episode was not your first departure from sort of the traditional narrative uh, in this first season, there was a flashback standalone starring Jake Johnson and Kristen Milioti, which you directed incredibly well received, but kind of a bold move so early in the run. Uh, what was the inspiration there? And did you guys debate about sort of placing it in the middle of the season the way you did? Well, of course, look, every, everything is a debate. Every, everything, every, <laughs> every, every pitch and idea you want to get torn apart because then, you know, at the end of it, if you still feel very strongly about something, then, you know, you can go into it with, with open eyes. So I just remember early on saying, look, there's no, there's no more rules. We don't have to do it the way we used to do it. I mean, you know, for years and years and years, Sonny had to be, I think, 19 minutes and 51 seconds. That's what it had to be. So it, that was just the old rules. It had to be 1951. It started off as 2230, then it went down to 2120, then it was 1951. And that was just because of the structure of commercials and all that. And now that just, none of that exists anymore. We have some episodes of Myth the Quest that are 23 minutes and some that are 35. Some of them shift in tone dramatically. It's just a completely different landscape out there. And, and, I just wanted to, you know, keep stretching the medium and do do something different. I I knew from the beginning that we wanted to do something that was a little less niche than Sunny, a little bit more of a cast a a, a, lar- a larger net, because you know I'd already done that with Sunny, and and we have a very loyal and for and and ferocious <laughs> uh, fan base, and that's awesome. So I wanted to see if you know maybe like I could get older people to watch a show, or maybe I could get like you know. 13-year-olds or 10-year-olds really to, to, to watch a show and yet still feel like we weren't pulling any punches. So I wanted to, in the beginning, create something that feels and felt a little bit familiar, something you kind of seen before, the office comedy. Oh, it takes place in video games. I guess that's the weird thing. Oh, he's the crazy boss. That was by design. We wanted it to feel somewhat familiar and kind of hopefully lure an audience in into then starting to deliver things that are a little bit more um, challenging uh, from a creative standpoint. Also, like a little emotional for a comedy. I I feel 
that you've become quite deft at finding earnestness in unexpected places. The standalone episode, the quarantine episode, Max dance routine several years ago on It's Always Sunny. Were your interests always there or is this sort of an advent of you being in comedy for as long as you have been? Yeah, I think one of the things we've always tried to do with Sonny, even, you know, 15 years ago, um, was to just try to continually make things that are unexpected. And when you when you endeavor to do that, you're, you're going to upset some people because they want to sit down and watch the same thing. Like, where's my old Sonny? Like, it's funny that the dance routine... I got a very exceptionally positive response. And then there was also, of course, a negative response because it felt so out of the the normal tone of the show. And I'm prepared for that. I'm I'm okay with that. And and people are entitled to feel how they feel about, you know, what what we're making. I just want to make sure that um, I'm continually stretching and trying to do new things because that's what's fun for me personally. And I like the, the idea of the challenge of making something that can make you laugh and also make you cry. But I don't want to make, uh, for right now, uh, I don't want to make a, like a straight up drama. I, I, I love making comedy. I think it's really fun. Yet, how can we challenge ourselves to create something that you're laughing out loud, you know, 50% of the time, chuckling 25% of the time, and then maybe getting the feels for 25% of the time. That feels like a win Mm -hmm. for a show like this. Whereas Sonny, you know, every time we think about an episode of Sonny, it's just, um, let's, let's make them laugh. And then every once in a while, let's, uh, let's, let's, let's try and do something different. Do you think that audiences have become come more open to that fluidity in storytelling or or do you find that there is still some rigidity in in what people expect from quote-unquote comedy i don't know i i don't know i mean i i i know that i stopped a, a long time ago trying to predict what people are gonna like and it happens all the time with sunny i would think that i would know that we would know our, our fan base. And so we'll write something and say, oh, they're going to love this. They're going to love this. And then you kind of just don't hear anything. And then we just like offhandedly might throw in this weird thing. And then it gets a massive response. And we have no idea why. It just kind of is. And so I try, I try desperately not to, to chase what I think other people are going to like. And I just go with what I like. And I hope people like it. I, I can't have you here and not ask you about the future of of Sunny, just because it is so interesting in in how long it's endured and like gained audience, stayed fresh, as you were saying, like people discover it ten years in. With your your co stars and collaborators, do you just sort of think that this could exist in in perpetuity at this point? What is where do you stand? Yeah, I don't see why not. I mean, I again, I I never understood why people look at jobs, any job that they take in this business as, as a stepping stone to something else. I am so grateful and, and fortunate to, to be doing what I love. And if someone gives me the opportunity to continue to do it, I still have fun doing it. I still feel like we're stretching ourselves creatively. The audience is there. Uh, I'm doing it with the people I love. Why would I ever stop? Makes sense. Rob, we have a a quick lightning round before I let you go. Okay. First question. If you had to quarantine with any of your Mythic Quest co-stars, who would it be? Characters or actors? 
Ooh. Meaning like, meaning like, am I, yeah, am, am I quarantined with CW or is it F? Choose your own adventure. <laughs> Meg Gans, co-showrunner. Okay. What is, if you had to give like one big cultural recommendation from the last two months, TV show, movie, podcast, book, anything that's given you joy and distraction during quarantine, what would it be? Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to give you two answers because they're tie for me and they're both docuseries. Cheer on Netflix. Please watch it. It's incredible. And if you haven't seen it and The Last Dance, the documentary on Michael Jordan. Oh yeah. Have you seen Cheer? I have. Oh. I have. I'm, I'm only halfway Loved through it. Last Dance though. Oof. Oof. I'm watching Last Dance for the third time. Oh my God. Yeah. Well, well I, the first time was by myself. The second time was with Caitlin. And now the third time, I don't know why I'm doing it, but I'm just, I can't. It's like, I, it's like, it, it's, it's comfort TV. To end things on a light and positive note, how would you say that your life has improved uh, since you've been stuck at home? One way your life has, has gotten a little bit better. Spending time with my family. I mean, not even a close second. Just the, the amount of time that I've got to spend with my kids. I mean, I, I've already consistently spent a, lot of time with, spent a lot of time with my wife because we live together, but we also work together. Um, and because we work long hours, um, we spend quite a bit of time together. But with my boys, who could care less about being on a TV set, I mean, they really just do find it so boring. They just never want to come to work with us. And so if I'm at work, I don't get to see them. But I've, I've got to spend the last three months every day spending all day with them. Fantastic. And a very good answer. Rob McElhaney, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Appreciate the support. Be sure to check out Mythic Quest on Apple TV Plus and join us next week when we'll be speaking with talent from another Apple TV Plus series. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.